I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about how Americans are affiliating with their respective political parties and how that's changed in the last couple of years, we have with us data scientist David Shore, who is in charge of data science at Open Labs R&D, a progressive nonprofit research firm. David, you've become sort of the wonder kid of democratic politics and data scientists, and everybody looks at you as the guru these days about you know how to interpret what is going on in the Democratic Party, what's going on in, in the Republican Party, why people have been shifting their alliances and affiliates. All of a sudden, people who used to be Democrats are now Republicans, and people who were once Republicans are, are shifting to become Democrats. How do you make sense of all this? You know, thank you very much. That's all very flattering. There have just been enormous shifts in partisanship and ideology, you know, over the last eight years. And, you know, these trends have gone on a lot longer. You know, this is a reflection of things that have been happening for 40 or 50 years. But, you know, 2016 was a really big structural break from how politics was before it. In 2016, Democrats did 10% worse among working class white voters than they did in 2012. You know, one of my favorite examples is that white voters without a college degree who made less than $25,000 a year, Barack Obama won that group in 2012. And Donald Trump in 2016 won that group by over 25 points. So these, these are, you know, roughly one in 10 white voters without a college degree switched their vote from 2012 to 2016. And those trends continued in 2020. Biden did better overall than Hillary Clinton. And so we're, we're, you know, white working class voters stayed basically at the level that they were before. Maybe things went up by half a point, but college educated voters swung by 7% toward Democrats. And then the countervailing force is that non-white voters uh, trended against us. Hispanic voters trended about 9% against Democrats. And that's percentage points, which means we're talking 18 points in margin, nearly one in 10 Hispanic voters switched their uh, vote from Clinton to Trump and black voters by something like 2%. You know, with Asian American voters, still a little unclear, but it looks like it was something like four to five percent, maybe even a little bit more with particular drops among the Vietnamese community. And so I think it's just very the gap between college educated voters and working class voters, you know, has never, never been larger. Uh, and we're left with this coalition, which is really different than how things looked before. We've never been in a position where educated people you know, wealthier people, the people who control boardrooms, who are over, you know, represented in our law schools, they're more liberal than they've ever been to an extent to which I think hasn't, is unparalleled to any other society in like probably Western history going back two or 300 years. And I think the last thing, you know, I've been monologuing for a while here is just that this has really important structural consequences. You know, it really, the American electoral system is really not designed 
for a coalition like this or its ability to hold power. Voters without a college degree are you know, much more likely to live in rural areas, so they're overrepresented in the Senate. They're much more likely to live in these large Midwestern states that determine the Electoral College. And due to these shifts, you know, we really now live in a point where Democrats need to win by millions and millions of votes in order to be in a place where they can hold you know, electoral power. And that's, that's really very concerning and bad. So why do you think this has all happened? And I guess the question is, too, is, is if the college educated are more liberal, are they closer to being progressive left or are they centrist? Like, what, you know, is, is there a range here? Another great question. You know, I, I think that even though there was a very big increase in education polarization, you know, the gap between college and non-college voters under Trump. And I think that locally, you know, that is a Trump specific story. If you look at the 2016 county level results, you know, this education polarization happened presidentially, but didn't happen in Senate or House races. After 2016, when Trump increasingly started to define the Republican Party, you know, that the down ballot caught up, though it hasn't fully caught up. And so I do think that this is, you know, literally about Donald Trump, that Donald Trump really changed what it meant to be a Democrat. You know, he kind of changed things from being disagreements over taxes to being, you know, disagreements about whether or not you like Donald Trump, which is itself kind of a cultural marker of how much, you know, where do you sit on this massive cultural divide that exists between college educated voters and non-college educated voters, you know, and it's wide ranging differences on personality, openness to new experiences, social trust, attitudes toward race and gender and what kinds of things you can say and which things you aren't. Very big divides. But that said, you know, I think Donald Trump capitalized on something there was demand for, you know, someone, one of a very smart person I know, said that the demand side of politics, as opposed to the supply side, is like a very underrated force for understanding why people believe, you know, why, what happens in politics and political dynamics. And, you know, what I mean by that is that the college educated share of the electorate is just much, much higher than it used to be. And this is a simple descriptive fact that I think is really underappreciated. If you go back to the 1940s, less than 5% of the electorate had a college degree. But flash forward to now, and that number is almost 40%. And so, you know, just to go even further, it used back in the 1940s, 80% of the population hadn't graduated high school. And now that number is something like six or 7%. And so the country is just much, much more educated than it used to be. And I think that there's a really interesting story you can tell, which is that in the 1940s, even though educated people were only four or 5% of the population, everyone in Congress, everyone in the Senate, Democratic or Republican, had a college degree. You know, you, there was this highly educated, relatively cosmopolitan elite of people who controlled both the Democratic and Republican parties, and, you know, the center left and center right abroad. And they understood, I think, intuitively, that the country, largely speaking, didn't share their values on a wide range of kind of globalist or cosmopolitan issues. And so they kept political uh, discourse around, you know, around these economic issues that they disagreed on. And, you know, I think what's really interesting there is that I think the people in the Democratic Party wanted to run on these like social issues or these cosmopolitan issues. They believed in because they, they were, I think, you know, educated cosmopolitan people. But they if they they knew that if they did, they would lose. And, you know, George McGovern, you know, I, I think Chris Hayes likes to say that he ran Hillary Clinton's campaign in 1972. And with 1972 demographics, you lose in a landslide. So 
I think what's changed is that now it's actually possible. You know, the country is educated enough that it is possible to win a local, like a New York mayoral primary or a Democratic primary or even a general election. If you have a recession at your back or the conditions are good with an openly cosmopolitan platform aimed at highly educated people. And I think the Democratic, as it became possible for the Democratic Party to do that, the Democratic Party started to do that. And, you know, what's interesting is I don't think the Republican Party wanted to exploit this. I think the people in charge of the Republican Party really didn't want to run a Donald Trump style campaign. They really wanted to run a Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney style campaign. But this just really opened such a big gap in the political landscape that Donald Trump exploited it. And uh, now that he has and now that he's proven that it's worked, I think it's going to be hard to go back. And what do Democrats think about this? Are Democrats worried that they've lost the working class, that they've lost people who were traditionally solid Tip O'Neill Democrats, the kind of Democrats that believed in people like Joe Biden? Yeah. I mean, it gets to something that you asked about in your last question that I didn't get to, which is, you know, these new voters who are coming into the Democratic Party, who are they and what do they believe? And, you know, I, I think something that I, I was personally wrong about, you know, something I used to believe is I used to say, well, you know, and this is, you know, back five years ago before Trump, I, I really believed, oh, Democrats are shedding working class voters. They're bringing in these, you know, these highly educated, you know, richer voters. Soccer moms. Right, right. You know, I, I just thought that this means the future of the Democratic Party is going to be Andrew Cuomo, you know, socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. Um, and I was I was very sad about that. Uh, it's not personally what my politics are, but I think I was wrong. Uh, I think I was clearly wrong. I think if you look at the last 20 years, as the party has gotten more educated, it has also become more liberal, not just more socially liberal, but more economically liberal. This is clearly true in other um, other countries as well. It's true in the UK. It's true in France. It's true in Germany. And I, I think that the story for why, even if it's a little counterintuitive, is that Educated voters think about things in highly ideological terms. And I think that in some ways you could even define ideology as the thing that educated voters believe. And so as we've seen these people switch from supporting Mitt Romney to supporting Joe Biden, you know, the part the Democratic Party has become more ideological and the Republican Party has become less ideological as it shedded, you know, uh, educated voters. And you know, I, I think that in some ways this has been good for the left. You know, Joe Biden has come out with, I think, the most socially democratic, you know, liberal economic agenda of any any Democratic president really in quite some time. But I do think that it's changed the messaging of how we talk. You know, something I really like to do is I, I like to watch the 2012 DNC and you compare it to the 2016 or the 2020 DNC it's very stark in terms of the language that people use, what issues they talk about. You know, 2012 DNC was much more economically focused. It used much simpler language, much less ideological language. You had Jennifer Granholm just shouting jobs, jobs, jobs uh, in a way that the Democratic Party doesn't talk like that anymore. And I, I think, you know, the, the danger is that the Democratic Party has become increasingly more liberal not in terms of policies, though it has become more liberal in terms of policies, but it's become more liberal in terms of the share of Democrats who identify as liberal. And I think that as the party has become more educated and more liberal, we've started to change the, our brand and our messengers to be who appeals 
you know, to these educated liberals. And that's true in terms of winning their votes, in terms of winning their, you know, uh, small dollar donations, which at this point are now the vast majority of money that exists in democratic politics. And I think that that's that change in our branding has really turned off, you know, working class white voters. And I think now in 2020 has started to turn off non-white voters as well, because, you know, there's a big racial divide within the Democratic Party where a majority of white Democrats identify as liberal, while the vast, vast majority of non-white Democrats identify as moderate or conservative. And so I think as we've done this branding, this has made us lose ground with non-white conservatives. Yeah. This explains how Donald Trump won more of a percentage of black voters and in part Latino voters as well, correct? I think it really is a story of ideological polarization. If you, you know, among white voters, 90% of white liberals vote for Democrats and 80% of white conservatives vote for Republicans. But historically, Democrats have won very large proportions of non-white conservatives. Because, you know, something that's really interesting about ideology is that even though there are very big racial differences in partisanship, ideology is basically the same. You know, if you ask people, do you identify as liberal, conservative, or moderate? Basically the same proportions of black, white, and Hispanic voters will tell you, liberal, conservative, or moderate. And so the reason Democrats have done so well with non-white voters is because historically we've won non-white conservatives by double digits. And if you look, Obama won Hispanic conservatives by double digits. And flash forwarding to 2020, Donald Trump won Hispanic conservatives by double digits. You know, most of the decline really is among these non-white conservatives who I think increasingly have been turned off by the branding of the Democratic Party. So what do you think the biggest problem this presents for the Democratic Party is? You know, I, I think the biggest issue is that most of the country is not liberal. Only 20, 25% of, of voters identify as liberal. And so if we, there's two big issues are one, if we live in a world where all the conservatives vote for Republicans and all the Democrats, all the liberals vote for Democrats, there are nearly twice as many conservatives as Democrats. And so that's just a losing proposition for us. But I think the bigger issue is that, you know, we have a terrible constitution and electoral system that strongly overweights the views of working class voters who live in rural areas. And the impact of that is that with our current coalition, we need to, you know, we need to win more than 52% of the vote in order to win the presidency. If Barack Obama ran for, had run for re-election in 2012, like he got 52% of the vote in 2012. If Joe Biden had gotten 52% of the vote, Joe Biden would have lost. And so that just really highlights with our current electoral, and the Senate is even worse, like with our current electoral system, in order for us to maintain our majority, because, you know, unfortunately, there are an enormous number of Democrats in seats that Trump won, and with increasing levels of polarization, most of them are not going to be in office, you know, four years from now. And that's just an unfortunate, you know, un under the status quo. And so with our current coalition, we really need to win overwhelming commanding majorities. And I think the fact that in 2020, we ran the most popular person in our party, whose last name was not Obama, against one of the most unpopular Republicans to ever run for office. And we only barely were, were able to win the tipping point state by like 0.3%. And that's not tenable. I think if we want to be in a position where we can win majorities and pass legislation, and, you know, with 50, 51 or 50, you know, 52% of the vote, we really need to do everything we can to decrease education polarization and go back to Obama levels of support among working class white people. 
if we don't do that, it mathematically just becomes very difficult for us to maintain our trifecta past 2022. So what are some of the things that are keeping Democrats from, you know, inspiring those people to vote for the party? Is it the, you know, there's been much made about the defund the police and things like that. Is it that kind of messaging that's turning those folks off or is there much more to it than that? You know, I I think that the key to winning elections, you know, it's funny because I I do, you know, I work in data science and we do all this modeling, but, you know, I think the key to winning elections is to talk about popular issues that people care about in language that people can understand. You have to get the media to cover you. You have to get the media to cover you while you do it. And that's, that's very difficult. And I think that there's on all of these things, you know, I think that there are, when it comes to the democratic policy agenda, there are lots of things that are very popular. Expanding access to healthcare is popular. Making it easier to go to college is popular. If you look at the American Recovery Act, it is one of the most popular pieces of legislation that we've ever pulled. And you know, to be clear, you know, the left also has good ideas. You know, uh, AOC's Loan Shark Prevention Act, which caps interest rates at fifteen percent, is also incredibly popular. Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax proposals are incredibly popular. But the flip side of that is that not everything that Democrats believe or support are popular. And I think it's easy to get misled. You know, something I think is unfortunate is that most issue polling, most issue research that gets done is funded by issue advocacy groups. And so as a result, every single thing that every liberal wants, you can find a poll that tells you that everybody supports it, but it's not true. And you know, one one poll that I find really illuminating uh, that Gallup did a couple of years ago was across a bunch of different issues. You know, they asked, which party do you trust more? on this issue, Democrats or Republicans. And you know, what you could see is, you know, people trust Democrats more on helping the middle class, on making healthcare more affordable, on education. Education is actually, you know, one of the biggest, one of the biggest policy advantages. And also to be clear, they trust Democrats more on improving race relations, trying to improve, you know, help oppressed groups. You know, I think people sometimes, I like to say, you know, the median voter is kind of racist, but not not that racist. You know, the reality is that the median voter supports police reform. Police reform is incredibly popular. There are a lot of policies like that would make the country more fair that the median voter supports. But then on the other hand, people do trust Republicans more on issues like guns, on crime, on immigration. And, you know, our job should be, you know, I, I like to say that the purpose of public facing communication is persuasion. You know, the Democratic Party's job should be to keep the public conversation on the parts of the issue space that the voter, voters trust us on, and that is healthcare, that is education, you know, that that is helping the middle class, and to keep the subject matter and, and to keep the policy, keep the public zeitgeist away from issues like guns and immigration and taxes, where people perceive a Republican advantage. And it's a tricky political problem, but I, I think that to the extent to which we do that and focus our communication on the things that people agree with, then we'll do better. And in particular, we'll do better among working class white voters and non-white voters as well. What do you think Republicans need to do to maintain their edge? I think it's the exact reversal of that, which is if I'm a Republican, I want to get, I mean, I don't want to give advice to any Republicans who are listening to here, but I think that the job of each party is to focus on the part of the issue space where you have an advantage. You know, the public does trust Republicans more on immigration and crime and gun rights and issues like that. And that is their strength. 
and Democrats should not play into that strength. I think we've been really baited into doing that. But the purpose of public facing communication should be to persuade people. And whenever anyone in the Democratic Party or any of the, you know, any of the affiliated issue advocacy groups, you know, one consequence of the Democratic Party being so liberal now is that what the Democratic Party's brand is now very closely tied to labor groups, to immigration groups, to reproductive choice groups, and I think our environmental groups. And I think in some ways as a liberal, I think that's great. It means that these groups now have so much more power than they've ever had before. And there are a lot of benefits to that, which are, you know, manifesting themselves in legislation. But with that power comes a responsibility. You know, all of these people who traditionally wouldn't have thought of themselves as party activists now actually have an enormous amount of power over how people see the Democratic Party and brand. And that means that they really have to apply these tests to everything they say. Every, you know, every time they say anything out in public, they should be asking themselves, is, is this something that's going to turn off the median voter? And if it is, they shouldn't say it because ultimately their interests and their fate are closely tied with the Democratic Party. If, if Democrats get locked out of power for a decade, that doesn't help any of these groups. Uh, and it's pretty bad for all of us. Where do you believe this is headed for 2022? That's a great question. So, you know, the big thing about 2022, not knowing anything else, midterms are usually very bad. You know, if you go back the past 30 years, you know, on average, the party that holds the presidency gets about 47, 47 and a half percent. And there's only there's only been one situation in the past 40 years where the party that controlled the presidency won a majority of the vote. That was 2002, George W. Bush. The uh, Republicans got 52.3% of the two-party vote in the House. And that was after 9-11. It was after 9-11. And, you know, the unfortunate nature of the fact that our, our districts are so gerrymandered by Republican state legislatures is that I think I can safely say that if we do not pass any kind of ban on partisan redistricting, which Congress fully has the power to do, there is some language in HR1, though I think the language doesn't go far enough. If we don't do that, we will almost certainly lose the House, you know, for the simple reason that if we replicated a 2002 style environment under our current maps, we would, it, we, there, it is not certain at all that we would win. I think we probably would be favored to lose because Republicans are gonna be able to re-gerrymander a lot of these seats. And so, you know, given that, I think it is very important, you know, Democrats having their power. I think one quote I gave is just that if Democrats pass independent redistricting and D.C. and Puerto Rican statehood, it will roughly triple our chance of holding the House and Senate. And the fact that it's possible to triple those odds indicates how bleak the situation is. But that said, you know, I do think that there are indications that this is going to be an unusually good midterm cycle. Joe Biden's approval rating has held both has been both high and steady over the past month, which, as far as I know, has literally never happened before. You know, going back to Harry Truman, usually presidential approvals drops like a stone over the beginning of the presidency. And so far, that hasn't happened. I think that owes in big, large part because Joe Biden has shown a remarkable amount of discipline, as have Senate and House Democrats on focusing on things that are broadly popular. The COVID relief bill, you know, obviously took up most of the oxygen in the last month. And so the big question is going to be, is that level of discipline going to be maintained going forward? And if it is, then it's a good sign. But the only problem is that, you know, the prior is that what, you know, midterms usually go very badly. And so something I like to say is if we just do politics as usual, if we treat this the way we did in 2009, we will definitely lose. So I'm excited. So far, all of the signs, you know, look good. But unfortunately, we have a really tough hill to climb. 
Well, how much is an issue like immigration, which is, you know, at the top of the evening news every night on the front page and front homepage of, you know, every news organization uh, these days, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's early days for 2022, but this is a, a an issue that is really percolating right now and doesn't seem to have an end in sight. How, how much is an issue like that going to play into 2022? I mean, immigration is a really bad issue for Democrats. You know, the reality is that even though a variety of common sense immigration reforms, you know, poll above 50, people trust Republicans on immigration more than they trust Democrats. And I think as a result, you know, whenever it enters the public conversation, Democrats lose votes. You know, Democrats, I think, are very sensitive to being attacked on immigration. And so it rising in salience, I think, is, is, is bad, you know, for the prospects of Democrats, you know, both nationally and obviously in the kinds of areas that we want to win. Working class white voters have particularly conservative views on immigration relative to the rest of the electorate. And so that's that's all concerning. I think, you know, the big question, I think that Joe Biden has very good instincts on this. He was one of the only Democrats in the primary to forcefully come out against decriminalizing border crossings, even though he faced a lot of flack for it. And I think his public facing communication, you know, recognizes the seriousness of the threat. I do want to be very clear. You know, I think that there is a real humanitarian crisis when it comes to immigration. I have very liberal views on immigration personally, um, but I think that there's a really big distinction between what you do and what you campaign on. You know, Donald Trump, very, I think, very intelligently did not go out and brag about how he cut taxes on super rich people or how he made it easier to pollute rivers. And I think it's very sad, you know, that the median voter sees, you know, legalizing the status of people who have been in this country for decades in the same light, but they see those kind of issues. But I think it's really important for us to be clear eyed about what parts of our agenda are popular and which parts aren't. Not because we can't do the unpopular agendas, part, parts of our agenda. I think it's important, you know, to help people. If you have a chance to improve people's lives, I think you should take it. But because it should influence our communication. If we know which parts we should paper over and which parts we should emphasize, we're going to win more elections and be able to help more people moving forward. So why isn't just running to the center the answer for Democrats? What I would say is that even though it is true that moderate politicians do better, um, it's absolutely true. I, I, I tried, I've tried to rationalize this away, but I, I think it is. Isn't that how the Democrats took the House back in the first place? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the correct answer here is that Democrats should do things that are popular and not do things that are unpopular. And I think in practice, that means not doing a lot of things that will make leftists mad at you. I think that you know, embracing Medicare for all is not something I would recommend. I think that campaigning on vastly increasing the number of refugees that we take is also not something I would recommend. I think that one really important thing about this is branding. You know, the median voter is about 50 years old, doesn't have a college degree, has a mortgage. And, you know, the reality about that is that means that there isn't a ton of appetite for a radical change. You know, I think something that Joe Biden does very well is that he actually is pushing through a policy agenda that I think would have been considered radical 10 years ago. But because he describes it as normal, common sense behavior, it's not perceived that way. I think that within the left, you know, the way that you get attention, the way that you get, you know, attention on social media, funding from foundations, and, you know, just uh, a lot of other things is to be make everything sound as radical as possible. But the, you know, the median voter doesn't want radical change. And I personally, you know, I do want radical change, but you should market your policies and not acid coat them. Uh, and I think this is something that Joe Biden has done really well. 
And I think it's something that the left has not uniformly done very well. I think when the left has done it, you know, I think Bernie Sanders in 2016 really avoided talking about policy details. He avoided, you know, he tried to take emphasis away from the large middle class tax increases that he wants to implement. He avoided hot button issues like immigration. And as a result, I think he did relatively well among working class voters, you know, especially relative to his ideology. So I think the big challenge of the day is, you know, message discipline and restraint and ideological restraint. I think that there are left-wing parts of the policy agenda that are popular and we should talk about them. You know, we should talk about popular things, but we should be clear-eyed and not talk about the unpopular things. I know it sounds like crazy political advice, but just let's talk about popular things is all I'm really trying to get people to do. Well, you know, Representative Abigail Spanberger of Virginia said very much a similar thing after the 2020 election in the Democratic caucus meeting when she, you know, yelled at her colleagues and said, look, if you continue to talk about slogans like defund the police and socialism, we're going to lose the house. And she made that very clear. So I think it's, she was saying pretty much the same thing that you're saying. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the important thing to note is I'm not saying that AOC should shut up or that Abigail Spanberger should, you know, be dictator of the Democratic Party. I think that both both sets of people have good ideas. But I, I, I do think it's true that defund the police is an incredibly unpopular thing. And I, I think it's clear that, you know, it hurt us electorally. And I think it's particularly true that it hurt us among Hispanic voters. One of the biggest predictors of switching from Clinton to Trump among Hispanic voters, actually the single biggest predictor, was having conservative views on crime. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that points to a real responsibility. Every time you talk about an unpopular policy, that does cost you votes. And I think something that's really dangerous, you know, I said before that the point of public facing communication is to persuade people. But I think in practice, most of these progressive groups use the media to coordinate with each other and do coalition service. And the problem is that swing voters are listening and, and then it's bad. I think that, you know, we need all of these groups to try to craft a message that's broadly popular and stay on that message. Otherwise, we're going to lose a lot of winnable elections. David Shore, thank you for your time today and helping us get to the truth of the matter about these very complex issues in politics today. Awesome. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 